Knives Out released in 2019 and at its core revolved around the idea alluded to in its title, an idea which is encapsulated in this particular line of the film. To steal back a fortune that you lost and she deserves. You're a pack of vultures at the feast. Knives Out beaks bloody. What Benoit Blanc describes here is the veneer that the Thromby family puts on for the entire duration of his investigation. This facade of esteemed and accomplished individuals, do-gooders, self-made titans of industry who want nothing more than a graceful end to their patriarch and for justice to see the light of day. But peel back the curtain and every member of the family is revealed for what they truly are. Scavengers, vultures, desperate to pluck out whatever wealth they could find parasites ravaging anyone who might so much as threaten their undeserved way of life. It works not only as a lovely and entertaining murder mystery, not only as an homage to classic whodunits, but as a relevant, direct social commentary. A cathartic shining of the spotlight on some of the most annoying people in the world. And in many ways, Glass Onion ticks all of the same boxes as Knives Out. Through much the same framing, its title and line explaining the title accomplish the same thing. A social commentary through simile that feels apt and timely. A message through metaphor which gives a satisfying release, acknowledging a glaring truth of today. Something we wish we could just scream from the rooftops. But perhaps more importantly than that, Glass Onion is a shitload of fun. I was sitting in a packed theater with a huge smile on my face for probably 60% of the runtime. The other 40% was a mixture of my jaw being on the floor, it dropping to the floor, or the theater employees kindly reminding me to pick up said jaw from the floor. There is just so much in this movie worth mentioning, so many interesting details, ideas, and techniques put on display that I fear I cannot do the film justice inside the span of one review of mine. Just know that whatever I discuss in this video, there is far more to appreciate about the film that I simply didn't have time to fit into this script. But the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, so here we go. The marquee item of this movie, and probably the main audience attractor, is the mystery proper. If you've watched the excellent trailers for this film, you know the general framing of it all. A billionaire invites his buddies to his remote island to basically spend the weekend playing Clue. A fun setup, but perhaps you're familiar with this genre and soured on this sort of trope. In that case, I can assure you there is far more to the plot and the structure of the mystery than simply that. Johnson is a clear fan of the genre of the whodunit and finds ways to include fun homages and unique twists to many classic moments you'd find at home in any sort of Agatha Christie adaptation. The entire script, much like the last, is a love letter to the genre of whodunits and I feel elevates itself to be one of the top titles in its category. And that's something that is difficult to do. Murder Mysteries occupies such a unique and intriguing place in the public consciousness and in our collective culture. I would argue they might be the most participatory type of film inside of the movie medium. I mean, in what other sort of movie are you actively paying attention to the most minute details? Trying to outsmart the cast and crew to solve the case. Getting your answer and showing your work before the clock hits zero and the detective gives his tell-all explanation. I mean, you have a multi-million dollar gorgeous puzzle put in front of you and you get the opportunity to solve it. It's perhaps the most immersive kind of movie. You're counting the gunshots that were fired. You're keeping track of a prop that might end up being entirely useless, all for the sake of being able to say you solved it. You cracked the case and the friend you went to see this with hadn't the slightest idea who done it. I love it.
I love it so much, and it's just so much fun. And that entertainment and joy is only amplified when the people bringing these projects to life love it too. They're determined to not only make a compelling, complex mystery that's fair yet challenging, but to do more give you enormous laughs and genuine heartfelt moments while they do it. Ryan is constantly multitasking in this movie. Much like in Onion, each scene has layers to it, accomplishing multiple things at once. They move the plot forward and they inform the personalities of the characters. They cue the audience and our investigators on motive and opportunity. They offer commentary on the world we find ourselves in while having that commentary fit perfectly in a dialogue between two characters. Beyond what stems from the script of this film, the foundation from which everything else is built up of, there is so much more to appreciate. Every performance in the film has a beautiful charm to it, providing life to these near caricatures of characters. Characters, sure, but perfect encapsulations of what the world has morphed and distorted itself into over the past few years, particularly since the beginning of the pandemic. They're so bombastic, yet so tangible. The comedy plays off more perfect moments than forced quips. Comedic moments feel fun, like it heightens the movie's experience. Not like it was an afterthought stationed in at a certain interval to keep you from getting bored, but instead to keep you connected with the moment, elevating it and making you feel right there with the characters. Even the cameos of this film never feel overbearing. They feel right at home in this larger-than-life world Ryan Johnson has brought us into. My personal favorite cameo was not really even an actor appearing, but, well, you know. And of course, this comedic timing and tasteful use of cameos could not be done without great performances across the board from the entire cast. Blanc is as beautifully charming as ever thanks to Daniel Craig's absurdist accent and just natural charisma. The new entries to the ensemble are all fantastic, but the two main standouts are Edward Norton and Jeanne Monet. I could talk about the little nuances and ticks they brought to each of their characters to manage more depth than you'd think possible in a murder mystery, but this review is going to be long enough already. Hell, I could probably write a paragraph alone about the relatively inconsequential appearance of Ethan Hawke. From a technical aspect, the crew of this film once again achieves brilliance. Knives Out was constructed with uses of dark browns, deep blues, and almost muted yellows. It was a palette that felt right at home with the realm of the thrombies. Garish, but with a twinge of old money and class. Glass Onion, however, uses tons of brighter colors. It's almost a palette of pastels. It creates a distinct feel, but one that feels right at home within this world. This is in large part because of the clever use and editing of digital footage to create that signature, imperfect filmic look. It's gorgeous and knives out, and it's still just as appealing on the Aegean Sea. And we get ties back to that original palette for scenes that take place in more woodsy locales or even in Blanc's apartment. The style and look of these films alone are enough to be enjoyable. On top of that, the blocking and framing of shots is just done so well. Tracking cameras enhance visuals or set the frame in a certain spot to give us a classical corner pier straight out of Scooby-Doo. Everything is done with affection and motivation. And recognizing this just makes the experience all the more rewarding. Even if something didn't matter, knowing the effort the crew put into a shot or a sequence to make it play the best that it could is so important and so captivating. And this may be the last thing that I can talk about without getting into spoilers of any sort, but I absolutely adore the fact that Ryan was clearly bothered by the iPhone problem from the original Knives Out movie. For those out of the loop, Apple used to require no bad guys using their products and films. In a whodunit full of iPhones and a single Android, where you're aware of this rule, it's pretty easy to figure out what's going to happen. Ryan, becoming aware of this the second time around, decided to make everyone use as inane a communication device as humanly possible 
flip phones, fax machines, laptops, even someone with a galaxy. Just really amusing if you know the backstory behind it all. From here on, everything I talk about will have slight, if not major, spoilers pertaining to the plot of the film and the themes and resolutions to it. So, you know, if you haven't seen it, maybe skip to my closing thoughts, which are here in the video. Or just decide to see the movie already. Lord knows I've hyped it up enough by now. Alright, what's up, cool cats? I already saw this movie. I have so many stupid thoughts that I just need to throw some of them out there right now like the fangirl that I am. Among Us, Miles' stupid disruptor speech being a spot-on description for what happens in the climax. Among Us, the fucking Mona Lisa being destroyed. Legendary. Miles' only creative kill being Blanc's idea he gave to him, which in turn was something that Blanc lifted directly from the game mechanics of Among Us, which he was playing at the beginning of the movie. Insane. That dude from The Undoing and Paddington in the movie? Sick. Okay, okay, done freaking out for now. Let me try to actually talk about significant things from the movie with spoilers. Like, mainly what I want to talk about is Miles and his eventual downfall. There's a lot that surrounds it from character and plot standpoints that I found super fascinating. First of all, I love the idea of billionaire stupidity, not only because it's entertaining, but because it's true. It's a brilliant encapsulation of the past few months of the world, particularly revolving around social media. Things like the bombing of the metaverse via Mark Zuckerberg, the FTX kerfuffle, and even Elon's shit show at Twitter all show us that these people aren't actually any more intelligent than the average idiot. They just have a lot more money and more lawyers to make it seem like they are. And in a way, this is underwhelming for a regular mystery reveal, but the underwhelming obviousness of it, as Blanc points out, is what makes it so perfect. I thoroughly enjoyed watching Ed Norton, that smug little piece of shit, get berated for his stupidity for about 20 minutes. But what I found even more fascinating than that was how even in spite of his complete exposure, those under his thumb opt for security instead of truth. They stand by their devil, their captor, with some sort of disgustingly parasitic and almost symbiotic Stockholm Syndrome. They're all pieces of garbage just the same, who could only bother taking a stand for the truth and what was right when it was guaranteed to not be of any risk at all to them. Yet another beautiful representation of a good part of the world's population. It was incredibly frustrating, but also incredibly accurate. Depressing, but I appreciate this direct recognition of these sorts of people. Johnson has a serious knack for pointing out the garbage that believes itself to smell good. Less obvious than this, and maybe not quite as explored, were the brief moments of Blanc's guilt when he believed Helen to be killed due to his plan that he ended up goading her into. I thought this was an incredible moment for Blanc's character and a super interesting direction to take the detective in. I wish there was maybe a scene between his learning of her survival and what follows, but I understand why it happened the way that it did. A very slight criticism that I don't think could have been truly implemented without seriously overhauling subsequent moments of the film. And I am willing to save that if it costs a character moment, I suppose. It's an incredibly tight script as is, and I struggle to see where any sort of time was truly wasted. From what seems like meaningless hot sauce and kombucha gags to performances that seem ineffective and stilted at first, there is meaning for nearly every single moment of Glass Onion. It all comes back in one way or another, and I can't imagine how any sort of change would improve the script. And I loved how we were given new context and new layers to the story as the plot progressed. We experience events in what seemed like their full context initially, but are then given the opportunity to revisit them with a better understanding and a fuller picture. The layering, like onions or even ogres, is done masterfully. Everything works the first way, but it clicks even more into place the second time around. Ryan seemingly makes use of his glass onion metaphor here, but I can make the argument that he doesn't. 
partially because he already explains where the glass onion fits in at the climax with Blanc's long-winded explanation, but mainly because he offers another theme that blends more naturally with this repetition of events. I mean the fugue from the puzzle box. That musical piece, you know? The one where it was explained that it's layered on top of itself again and again, creating something entirely new? That was exactly what Ryan managed to do with the second act of Glass Onion. Beautiful to watch and a joy to appreciate when you recognize that he tells you exactly what he's doing before he even starts doing it. Everything gets more meaning with a second layer, from Helen's drinking the kombucha and stumbling about, to a consensual cuckolding to, like I said, Miles' speech about what a disruptor is and does and how it affects Andy. Speaking of Miles and the Onion, again I cannot overstate how much I love this exploration of him. A seemingly complicated man with all the money in the world and infinite ways to spend it. A man who seems to be torn between what he did and what it brought him. Someone who wants to change the world but also keep his leeches in his back pocket. At the end of the day, when you cut through all the pleasantries and false appearances, Miles stands a bare man. He's a complete moron propped up by money. Nothing more, but nothing less. Someone with the simplest of minds, but with more means to act on his intentions and escape consequences than most anyone could ever dream of. And he still manages to lose out, expose his complete idiocy, thanks to his massive, inflated, onion-sized ego. He needs to point out everything special about him, make himself the elephant in the room, always be king of the hill. That the problem with that is when you're always at the center of attention, people will start to notice how unremarkable you really are, how much of a fraud you can be, and how much of a fraud you always have been. And the same can be said about the simplicity of all his shitty forced friends. We spend this entire movie believing them to be complicated, troubled, and complex. That these are challenged individuals in tough situations that are trying to get by and survive and do right. And they might be willing to do wrong to put an end to all of it, but no. End of the day, they're just as simplistic and greedy as Miles is. Every action they take is what they believe is going to save their asses with the least risk presented to them. Whenever they move to swap sides or to stay in their place, it's just fear and greed. Nothing more. The extent of their complication is purely the illusions we conjure up for them in our own heads as we watch. You even get the stupidity flaunted to your face earlier in the film. When Blanc calls Birdie on it, he tells her straight up, don't conflate speaking without thinking to speaking the truth. It can be dangerous. And because she's so jealous of whiskey and so horny for Blanc, she completely misses this. She's just an idiot, like everyone else there save for Blanc and Helen. Debatable on Peg, Whiskey, and that one dude who's just kind of there, though. That one dude is also a perfect representation of the glass onion as well. A red flag that is told to you straight up that it's a red flag, though you surely thought about him being something more, or even being the killer, for a bit. But even with all this in-your-face simplicity, the movie just works. Johnson puts the viewer in a position to suspect and re-examine nearly everything put in front of them. Motives are given new context, scenes are redefined for us with new information, and we're always on our toes despite the answer being so plain, so simple, and so in our faces. It's a real achievement. This is just what I wish more movies could be. Something that takes you on a genuinely enjoyable ride where you get to have a captivating experience. Something where you're just consistently impressed by every aspect of the craft and care behind it. The thought put into the production design, the layout of this entire island the movie takes place on, and the care and precision put into the script. What Ryan Johnson has done with Knives Out, and succeeded in doing again with Glass Onion, has made me want to be a better writer. To be someone who can create and convey stories as engaging and entertaining as this one. Stories that are full of life and fun, but stories that also manage to have meaning and messages. Stories that 
that make the Nicole Kidman pre-show advertisement feel less like an ironic joke, and more like something that speaks genuine truth about what film and filmmaking can be. Stories that are worth telling, worth being heard, and worth experiencing on as big a screen and as loud a set of speakers as you can afford. Stories like Glass Onion. I give it a 4.5 out of 5, see it as soon as you are able. I probably release this after the limited theatrical run, but it will be on Netflix by December 23rd as an early Christmas present to me and the rest of the world that has good taste. So until next time, lots of good stuff is coming out, so I honestly have no idea what's next.